We resumed Isaiah last week. We're in a series from chapter 40 through chapter 66. We uh, started with Isaiah chapter 63 last week. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 622. Last week, since we just resumed Isaiah then, it had been over a month since we'd been in Isaiah, so I, I gave you a little bit more of an extended uh, background material, uh, developing a little bit of context so that we would understand something about Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to do it a little bit shorter today. It's going to be a little bit different approach, but it's the same basic themes, but a little bit shorter. If it seems like something's missing, hopefully it was addressed with a little bit more detail and specificity, a word I don't usually use, but a little more of that last week. So, in, uh, especially in Isaiah chapter 63, this is following all those other chapters and the theme is building. Uh, it's a developing theme, and and so if you just jump into chapter 63, it's kind of like it's kind of like people that just show up at a church service on Resurrection Sunday, and and clearly at least some people are very excited. It seems to be a lot. It seems to be a very big deal, but for other people that maybe just show up on that Sunday, it's a little bit lost on them because they're not there for the whole story. They're just there for the end of the story. And it seems like a happy ending, but I'm not sure you can appreciate the happy ending if you haven't been through the story. So we're in Isaiah chapter 63, but it very much depends on those previous chapters. And I'm going to drop off 56 and 57 in just a moment, because I don't really... 58 is kind of a culmination of those two chapters. But the point is that this entire story, this this uh, unfolding narrative, this, and it's a drama. And it's not a drama in the bad way, like, oh, my family has so much drama. I'm so glad the holidays are over. It's not that kind of drama. It's the kind of drama that invites you to, I want to know more. I want to read more. And, and this is the drama in the best possible sense because it's a drama I'm not familiar with in Isaiah's gospel. I've grown up from as early as I could possibly remember, uh, with the drama of the Gospels. And it doesn't mean the drama of the Gospels should be lost on me. It doesn't mean that if I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, as I read that drama, new things shouldn't be emphasized or pop out, or, or maybe the same old idea in another way where I'm like, what kind of God would die on a cross? That's a drama too. But this is... This is a gospel drama in Isaiah that I'm really kind of unfamiliar with. Now, I've read it, but to read it and to understand the details and, and some of the nuance of how this drama is unfolding, this is a new drama. And so, in its own unique way, I find it especially exciting and inviting. So, in this drama, it kind of all hinges on uh, what, what God promised back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Most of the Bible, in some sense, one way to look at it is it's a unfolding or revealing or disclosing what God promised to Abraham. If you're a person who doesn't mark up much stuff in your Bible, but just every once in a while you do, Genesis chapter 12, those first few verses should be underlined or highlighted or starred or something. 
God, the Lord tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that only is going to be fulfilled. We know as Christians that will only be fulfilled because of Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham. But in the promise given to Abraham, which is a promise not only for the man Abraham, but for the Jewish people, and it's a promise that extends as well to all the families of the earth will be blessed. How could that possibly happen? That's what much of the rest of the drama of Scripture is about. How God is going to keep this promise to Abraham. It has never been abrogated. It it has never been set aside. It has never been, well, that's not going to happen. It is exactly going to happen, just like the Lord promised. But in in, uh, chapter 58 of Isaiah, we have a sin problem. And it seems like this covenant may be in jeopardy because of the sin problem. Because the Lord's own covenanted people, the descendants of Abraham, have a sin problem. Now, right there, I'm drawn into the drama because I have a sin problem. And so, just like Israel had a sin problem, and yet somehow God has made this promise to Abraham, I've got a sin problem. How is this sin problem going to be resolved? Isaiah chapter 58 makes it very clear the problem is without remedy so far as Israel is concerned. There's nothing they're going to do to solve their sin problem. So in Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord presents his remedy. It's a wonderful remedy. And in fact, this is another one of those extremely important passages in Scripture. But it says something that much of the rest of the Old Testament isn't so clear about. Now, all the way back even before this covenant, before Genesis 12... You could go back to the very first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3. And it's right after Adam and Eve sinned. And the Lord, as he's confronting and addressing Adam and Eve, he talks about the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. But we don't know who that seed is. And for for all the world, Eve thinks it's the next child that she bears. This is going to be the Lord's solution to our sin problem. I just bore a child. And this child is going to solve our problem, but it wasn't that child. All we know is somebody, the Lord is going to send somebody who will solve the sin problem. But what Isaiah chapter 59 reveals about the Lord's remedy is this. The Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. We knew the problem would be solved. We didn't know that it was the Lord himself who was going to solve it. He, was going, he wasn't going to send anybody. There was nobody to send. He was going to raise up somebody or a people group or a prophet or a king. There was nobody that could solve this problem. The solution is his own arm will bring him salvation. That is huge. That's the gospel. I should have said huge. That is the gospel. Chapter 63 reiterates this point, which shows you some of the continuity of this drama. Chapter 63, I looked. This is 
Uh, think of it in terms of God the Father speaking something. In chapter 63, it's God the Son saying something. Because when the Father says, I'm going to bring salvation, I'm going to solve the problem, what he does is he sends the eternal Son of God. So I, the Son of God, the Messiah, Christ, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. God is going to solve this problem. Christ is going to solve this problem. It could be solved no other way. No amount of information, no new tract, no new uh, set of scriptures, no new nothing. The only way it is solved is by God himself solving the problem. And that's what's promised in those two chapters. Then you have chapters 60 and 61, which in two different occasions tell us that the Lord is glorified in what he accomplishes. Because that's the highest reason why anything happens. That's the best motivation. It's the highest achievement. Yes, sinners are saved. That's good. But the most important thing is that the Father, that the Lord is glorified. What's, what drove Christ to the cross more than seeing sinners saved, though that was certainly an accomplishment and achievement, ultimately, Jesus' objective was to glorify his Father in heaven. And so we're told two times in chapter 60 and then in 61 that he is glorified in what he accomplishes, in what he achieves in this purpose of salvation. In chapters 61 and 63, we find out that the Lord's remedy involves two key aspects or elements. The Lord is going to solve the problem. He himself is going to come, and there will be these two, kind of two sides of the same coin, Two great things that uh, comprise the Lord's remedy. And it's found in two places. This is all part of the continuity of this drama. This is all still what we explored last week. In chapter 61, Messiah speaking, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the two key elements. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus reads those and says, that's talking about me. The two elements of the Lord's remedy, we've got a year of the Lord's favor, and you've got a day of vengeance. And then in chapter 63, we find the same thing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Two key elements to what the Lord achieves in his remedy. Uh, Only God is qualified to bring salvation. Only God is qualified to judge the hearts of men. And he promises to do both. One is considered a year, a year of the Lord's favor. That's not a literal year. It's been 2,000 years since the year of the Lord's favor started. We're talking about that in the adult Sunday school class, the day of Pentecost. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the year of the Lord's favor. And then there will be a day of vengeance. One is very extended. One is very long. One is very abrupt, short, and brief. When Christ comes back in power and glory. Well, that year of the Lord's favor 
is, is uh, unfolded in chapter 60, 61, and 62. We find out all about the year of the Lord's favor, how it all culminates, how it all winds up. We're in the year of the Lord's favor now, but if you turn to 60, 61, and 62 and think that's what you should be seeing outside, you'd be wrong. Chapters 60, 61, and 62, when it talks about the year of the Lord's favor, it's not talking about the beginning of it. It's not even talking about the ongoing process of it. It's looking at the very end of the year of the Lord's favor. How's it all going to wind up? And it's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. It's all accomplished, the year of the Lord's favor. Um, In chapter 63, the first six verses, we learn about the day of vengeance. Now, there are other passages of Scripture that uh, spend a lot of time talking about the day of vengeance. But in this unfolding drama of Isaiah, you've got six verses devoted to this day of vengeance. And it particularly uh, uses the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, to focus our attention on it's not only favor and salvation, it's also judgment. It's also judgment. There's a day of vengeance as well as a year of favor. So, the question for for today, where we now start new material, the question for today is this. Where do the people of Isaiah's day fit into this prophecy? How do they fit in? God is, they've got a sin problem. The Lord has proposed a wonderful, glorious solution that will bring glory to himself. He's promised a year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance. When Isaiah knows all this, when Isaiah looks at his situation, is he seeing a year of the Lord's favor? No, he's not. He's not seeing shalom. He's not seeing peace. He's not seeing wholeness and completeness. He's not seeing resolution to the sin problem. Nor is he seeing a day of vengeance against the Lord's enemies, against Israel's enemies. He's seeing neither the year of the Lord's favor nor the day of vengeance. He sees neither one. What Isaiah sees is Israel is like a wrecked car by the side of the road. Their situation is not good. Isaiah's been given all this information, and he still sees himself and his, the Israelites stuck in chapter 58. We still have a sin problem. The Lord has proposed and announced this wonderful remedy. He said all these wonderful things, how it's all going to wind up, but right now we've got a sin problem. That's the question. Where does Isaiah fit in to this, pro- to this prophecy? His present circumstances don't match the Lord's promise. What do you do when your present circumstances don't match what the Lord has promised? And much of the Bible gives uh, answers that question. A particularly good place that we won't make time for this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 11, most of you probably are familiar with that chapter. It's called the Hall of Faith chapter, where so-and-so by faith did something. They were living in a tension between their present circumstances and what the Lord had promised. The Lord had promised wonderful things, but they had not entered into those wonderful things in any kind of sense of fullness or completeness. There's a tension. So by faith, they continued to trust in what God had promised in spite of their present circumstances. Well, it's, I think, easy to see how this applies to the church. Because we live with a tension between present circumstances and what the Lord has promised. 
It's not entirely or exactly like what Isaiah experienced, because in fact, we are living in in the year of the Lord's favor right now, already. But we're not living in Isaiah chapter 60, 61, and 62. It hasn't been brought to completion. As much blessing as the church has, and it's what Isaiah could only dream about, we haven't been brought into a state of completeness and wholeness. It hasn't all been resolved yet. I still struggle with sin. You still struggle with sin. And so we live with the same tension Isaiah lived with between our present circumstances and all that the Lord has promised. Um, Christian theologians talk about the already not yet principle. We already are experiencing the year of the Lord's favor, but it's not yet complete. It's already here, but it's not yet completely fulfilled. That's the already not yet principle. So, how should Isaiah wait? How should the faithful remnant of Israel wait? How should we wait? How should the church wait? How should we wait between when our present circumstances are disappointing and we still shed tears and we still bury loved ones and friends? How do we wait in this in-between period? And we live by faith, but what exactly does that look like? Fortunately, I don't don't even have to turn to now, let's do a topical study on what does it mean to live by faith or how should we wait. Isaiah tells us in his own unfolding drama how we should wait. How we should wait is found in chapter 62. And we've looked at it a couple times. I'm going to throw the couple verses up on the screen. How we should wait, how Isaiah should wait, how the remnant of Israel should wait, how should we wait until the Lord fulfills all that he's promised to do. In chapter 62, verses 6 and 7, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him, the Lord, no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. That's how you wait. That's how the church waits. There's basically two, call it maybe even three things. The two things how we should wait is there's to be a watching and there's to be a putting the Lord in remembrance. This watching is uh, not being silent. It's watching and praying. You're not silent. You're not just watching and waiting patiently, passively doing nothing. It's a watching and looking forward and expecting God to fulfill his promises and you're praying all the while. You're not silent about it. Now let me ask you, that's what Isaiah is supposed to do. Is the church ever called to watch and pray? Yes, they are. They're to watch and pray. We are to watch and pray. Isaiah is to watch and pray to see how God is unfolding his plan of redemption. Isaiah is told to put the Lord in remembrance. Is the church ever told to put anything in remembrance? I mean, last year we were doing the Lord's Supper. Well, before COVID, we did it every other week. Last year we did it roughly once a month. I missed December. That's when I had COVID. But uh, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded, do this in remembrance of me. Hopefully in this year, I'm... My plan is to do it every three weeks. Uh, Once a month, I want to remember 
more personally. I like remembering more than once a month. What Isaiah is told to do is what the church is told to do. Watch and pray. Remember what I told you. Remember what I... We gather as a church to remember what he told us. To remember what he told Isaiah. We're in the New Testament, we're remembering what Christ told us. Or what Christ told us through one of his apostles. That's why we gather. We're to be remembering. We're watching. We're praying. We're telling God, this is what you said. Give him no rest until he establishes, until he fulfills all his promises. It's not wrong to pray to God what he's already promised to do. That's the best kind of prayer. <laughs> I, can, I can offer lots of requests. I don't know how they will be answered. But there are lots of things we can pray. I know exactly how they're going to be answered because he's already promised to do it. Those are the best kind of prayers. And they're found all over in Paul's epistles. So, in Isaiah chapter 63, through chapter, uh, the rest of the chapter, 7 to 19, and it actually extends through all of chapter 64, which if I get through the rest of 63 today, we'll do 64 next week. The goal is to do the entire chapter, but we'll see how that works. It's a short chapter. What's happening in the rest of 63 and all of chapter 64 is that here's a real example of what it means to watch and pray. Here's a real example of what it means to put the Lord in remembrance. What does it look like for Isaiah? It's exactly what he then does next. So let me read these verses for you. You can follow along in your own Bible. Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. The praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put him... No. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation where are your zeal and your might. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we we fear you not? 
Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And that passage is very clear. Isaiah is expressing his present circumstances, which don't match the Lord's promise. Isaiah is watching and he's praying. He's putting the Lord in remembrance of what the Lord has already promised and what the Lord has already accomplished and done. And he's reminding the Lord of what he's promised yet to do. That's all part of the prayer. And it goes into chapter 64, which we don't have time for this morning. But let's start off with identifying who's who and what I just read. We start off with, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. The I can really only be reasonably one of two characters, and there's not a significant difference between the two. You could say, and I think it's probably easiest to say, the I refers to Isaiah. Isaiah is praying this prayer. You could make it less personal and say, it's the watchman praying the prayer. That's okay if you don't want to make it Isaiah. Isaiah is a watchman. I think Isaiah, as a watchman, is praying the prayer. Just like the Lord said, here's how you wait. You're going to watch. You're going to watch and pray. That's what Isaiah is doing. I'm going to do this. He's a watchman. So he begins this prayer. You've got a lot of third-person pronouns. You've got a lot of he and his in verses 7 to 13. You've got a lot of they and them in those verses. That's describing a relationship. All those he and his, those are all in reference to the Lord God. All the he's, all the him's, that's in reference to the Lord God. The they and them, obviously, aren't the Israelites of Isaiah's day. The they and them, the more impersonal, it's looking back at the Hebrews who were in Egypt. The Lord had a relationship with the Israelites, the Hebrews who were in Egypt, and he did something for them. He did something for them. So it's describing this relationship between the Lord and the first Israelites who were redeemed out of slavery. And by the way, very often when the Bible talks about the Lord saving Israel out of slavery, he redeemed them, he he saved them, he was their savior. It's not so much talking about salvation in the sense that we think uh, forgiveness of sins, it's talking about he delivered them. It's a physical deliverance. Salvation can be very physical or it can be very very spiritual. So when it talks about they were redeemed out of Egypt, it doesn't mean that in all the Jewish nation, all the Israelite nation are going to wind up in the kingdom of heaven, but they all were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They all, all were redeemed. They all were saved in that sense. So that's the relationship between the Lord and, and the people way back in Moses' day. Then you've got another set of pronouns, mostly in verses 14 to 19, where it's you and yours, and us, our, and we. And now the relationship has changed, because Isaiah is juxtaposing the Lord's relationship with them, those that were in Egypt, and then he compares it with our relationship with the Lord God. It's still, the you and the yours is still referring to the Lord God. But now he's comparing our relationship with the Lord God kind of in contrast with their relationship with the Lord God. And then you've got one verse that 
I mean, some Bible scholars consider it troublesome. It's reflected in our translations that way. It would be verse 11. Verse 11, the first part of verse 11, I I think it is rightly divided up. The first part of verse 11 says, Then he, and I've got that yellowed and capitalized, because I think it's still the Lord God. I think all those he and his are the Lord God. So, then the Lord... Remember the days of old of Moses and the Lord's people. But not all Bible translations reflect that. Some make it a little he. So now it's Isaiah. Now Isaiah remembered something. And even more unfortunate are some Bible translations that actually insert people. Now his people remembered something. I don't think it's his people, and I don't think it's Isaiah. I'm going to be very consistent and say, just like all those, and there's probably a good dozen he and his that refer to the Lord God, it hasn't changed in verse 11. The Lord is still referred to in verse 11. He's the one remembering. And it is pivotal to Isaiah's prayer, to Isaiah's argument. I'll give you the the gist of it, and then we're going to explore the particulars in just a moment. What Isaiah is going to argue is, or what he's praying is, is I look back on the Lord's relationship with that first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. The Lord was very good to those people. Were they they a noble people, a righteous people, an obedient people? No, they were... Are you kidding? They, they grumbled and complained and committed idolatries and sin against God all through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And yet the Lord still loved those people. Because the Lord remembered the days of old. He remembered Moses. He remembered his people. He remembered his promise. But now Isaiah, looking at his relationship, he doesn't see the Lord remembering anything. It feels like the Lord is forgotten. It feels like the Lord isn't extending any grace or any mercy. And so Isaiah's prayer, the way it's constructed is, but you changed how you dealt with those first, that first generation. Won't you please do the same for us? Give us a taste again of your grace and your mercy, just like you did for them. I don't think we're any worse than they are. And yet you still extended grace and mercy. Do it again for us. That's Isaiah's prayer. So I, uh, off, I think lots of times I try not to be real hard and fast on how something should be translated, but I'm not going to give up at a capital H, he, in verse 11, or a capital H, his, people, in verse 11. All right, so let's, uh, let's begin looking at the particulars of this, che- uh, yeah, the details of this text. And I don't have anything on the screen for you. I think we'll, there's too much to cover in great detail. So um, I'm going to pick out what I think is most important, then I'll hopefully open it up for comments and questions at the end. And if you think I've missed something, uh, we'll go from there. So it starts off in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And it's very interesting, verse 7 starts and ends with steadfast love. That's one thing that's worth noting. And that's a, if you're going to recall what God has done, uh, start with his steadfast love and end with a steadfast love. That's a great place to be. 
because God's love is steadfast. He's faithful to what he's promised to do. And it's explained exactly how it is that he's, his steadfast love is exhibited itself. In verse 8, it says, speaking of God's steadfast love, if you need evidence, verse 8, for he said, the Lord said, surely they are my people. That's God's sovereign grace. Deuteronomy makes very clear they're not his people because they deserved it. They're not his people because they were the the biggest number, the most righteous, the most promising. That's not why they're his people. There's only one reason why the Lord could say they're my people, and that's because God in his grace said those are my people. I'm going to make them my people. That's steadfast love. But then he makes a statement that seems a little difficult. They are my people, children who will not deal falsely. What? Um, Isaiah has not forgotten the record of Moses. Those people dealt falsely as the day was. They, They were hardly had Egypt out of sight and they began dealing falsely and not believing and committing idolatry and being disobedient. They dealt falsely all the time. So the way I think this is meant to be understood, and I'm really quite convinced of that as well, this statement is not meant as a statement about Israel's character. When the Lord, when the Lord says, or Isaiah says, children who will not deal falsely, he's not giving a, an assessment of Israel's character. He's giving us an assessment of the Lord's character. In other words, the Lord says, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. The Lord is going to so extend his steadfast love and his grace to those people that there will be no possible reason or expectation why they wouldn't be obedient and loyal and trusting and faithful to the Lord God. The Lord isn't going to hold anything back. So that Israel can say, well, sure we did that, but look, you, you left us short. You didn't fulfill everything you promised to do. Uh, something was missing. It's a statement about God's character, about God's reasonable expectation regarding this people. He will give them no reason for anything other than complete, wholehearted obedience. The problem isn't on God's fault, on the Lord's fault. Let's keep going. In verse 9 is also an interesting verse. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Once in a while, suggestions are made uh, to try to soften that and and make it say something uh, a little less. But I think that's exactly what it means. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. There's a, a doctrine of the church, especially... Uh, of the early church fathers is called the divine impassibility of God, that God is not moved by passions. And more modern theologians, uh, I think, and I just read a fantastic article. I printed out three journal journal articles this week because I've always struggled in my own mind to try to understand, uh, call it the emotion of God to try to rightly understand it. And I know there's a tension between what early church fathers thought and what more moderns think. And I've struggled to try to piece it together. And the first two articles I read were like, nah, that's not even close. I mean, they really fell flat. And then the third one was gold. I just read it last night. 
So it's not incorporated in my notes, but it's like gold. It's what I've been looking for literally for years. Uh, probably doesn't answer every question because it's, it's an article, not a book. It's only 9, 10, 12 pages. But it does such a good job explaining this. When we talk about divine impassibility, what it means is God is not moved by his emotion. He's not affected personally. He's not driven by his emotion. You know, we've all done things emotionally that we regret. And if we hadn't been, uh, we call it, a, uh, in, in judicial terms, they can call it a crime of passion. It's regrettable. You were caught up in the moment. Uh, your passions controlled you. Uh, the word passion, I've, I've explained this many occasions, the word passion comes from the same idea as passivity. In your passions, you are passive, and you are driven to do something because you're passive. You're not thinking clearly. God is never that. God is not ever driven passively by emotion. Never. It's the divine impassibility of God. But it does not mean that God does not have emotion and that in relationship with his people, in the way that he, he uh, engages in this relationship, that he isn't afflicted when his people are afflicted. And God isn't grieved. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin. God is grieved when we sin. When, God, when the Lord's people were afflicted, the Lord was afflicted. It didn't change his character It didn't cause him passively to respond certain ways. But God cares about his people. That's a good word. And Isaiah is praying that good word. Then he says, still in verse 9, the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. The angel of his presence, a more literal translation would be the angel of his face. Angel is a word that means messenger. The messenger of his face, the messenger of his presence saved them. Who is that messenger? Who is that angel of his face? The common, uh, I would say the overwhelmingly, the majority opinion is, it's this is Christ before he was born a child. Uh, I don't like it when commentators say, well, this is, this is Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. It's not Jesus. Jesus had a beginning. It's in Bethlehem. And it's hundreds of years later. Jesus has a beginning. The Son of God has no beginning. So this isn't Jesus in the Old Testament. It is the eternal Son of God in the Old Testament, possibly. It's the eternal Christ in the Old Testament. There's a huge difference between Christ coming in the form of a body and what happened in Bethlehem where he didn't come in the form of a body. He became a boy, a baby, a man. He actually became one of us. There's a world of difference between appearing as a man, Old Testament, and becoming a man, what happened when he was born of Mary. So, the predominant answer is that this is Christ in the Old Testament. But one commentator, scholar, argues a little bit differently, and I at least found it intriguing, and it's not a deal breaker either way. But he's going to say this angel of his presence is in reference to the Holy Spirit because that's exactly what we read about in the following verses. Verse 10, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, which this scholar ties it back to the angel of his presence. And then in uh, verse, uh, well, halfway through verse 11, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? 
Where is he who put them in the midst of them? His Holy Spirit. The Lord put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them. The angel of his presence. I think it's very easy to tie the angel of his presence with those two references to the Holy Spirit. By the way, those are extremely rare references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I think there's only three in all the Old Testament. Two are here. I could give you, like, bonus points if I could award such bonus points. Where the third reference is, it's Psalm 51, where David says, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I think those are the only three references to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that's the only time the Spirit of God appears in the Old Testament, because there's many places where it talks about the Spirit of God, the Lord's Spirit, but the Holy Holy Spirit, extremely rare. I think it could be the angel of his presence. Whether it's the pre-incarnate Christ, whether it's the Holy Spirit, the point is the same. But then in verse 10, in spite of what the Lord does for them, in verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. They rebelled and grieved. Therefore, and this is a horrible therefore, therefore he, the Lord God, or he, the angel of his presence, turned to be their enemy. And he himself, the Lord God, fought against them. The steadfast love of the Lord and the Lord God fought against, turned against his own people at the end of verse 10. But then in verse 11, then the Lord God remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. It's almost as if what's being pictured is, and this is a picture, it's an accommodation for us, what's being pictured is it's almost like the Lord is torn. He's got to turn against his people. They've rebelled, they've sinned, they're idolatrous. But then he remembers his promise. He remembers Moses. He remembers what he's covenanted Abraham. He remembers all that. And he's, it's as if the Lord is torn. He's not. But you, there's this tension between how does the Lord bless this people when they rebel against him? How do, what does that look like? It's, it's kind of like when a, when a parent says to a child, it's a time of discipline and it's not a good time of discipline. It's going to be pretty rough. And, and probably with Sarah, I had to say this the most in our family. This is, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Uh, I think that's kind of what what's happening there with the Lord. I mean, he's afflicted when, he, when his people are afflicted. Sometimes it's the Lord afflicting his people. And it hurts him more than it hurts them. But he remembers his promise. He remembers Moses. He remembers all that he said he's going to do. And Isaiah is reminding the Lord of that because he wants the Lord to remember again for them. That's the whole point. That's why the he in verse 11 at the beginning is still stuck speaking of the Lord. And then Isaiah speaks up in the second part of verse 11, and he asks the questions I just told you. Isaiah says, I'm going to add the word so, so where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? And where is he who put, the, put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Did they deserve any of that? No. And yet the Lord did it all. He gave them rest. He led them. He provided for them. They didn't deserve it. And Isaiah's feeling abandoned. 
They're about to lose the entire nation. The temple's going to be wiped out. They're going to go into exile. Remember us too. That's the prayer. Remember us too. Don't forget us. You did for them. They didn't deserve it. Remember us too. Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. It's a cry for help. I think the Lord hears that cry. It's very interesting, a verb used there at the end of verse 15 where it says, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. You're holding back from me. Because kind of a natural response in this situation is to to do something. I mean, there's a few times in my life where I definitely wanted to interject myself when my kids were growing up and I considered a situation maybe very unjust or very hurtful or very harmful. Dude, you want to like, you want to be all over that situation. Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't, but you want, and the Lord is holding back and Isaiah's praying that. It's a verb only used five times in the Bible, twice of Joseph. Very interesting. You're going to find, you can read the story in, in Genesis, but I'll tell you the two times. One is, Joseph's, Joseph is, is unknown to his brothers. He's second in command in all of Egypt. And his brothers make a second trip back in an obedience to this Egyptian ruler, Joseph, unbeknownst to them, who says, you've got to bring me your younger brother so I know you're telling the truth. And they do. They bring back, they come back for more grain and they bring Benjamin. And Joseph lays eyes on Benjamin and he says, is this the younger brother you told me about? And they're like, yes, this is the younger brother. And Joseph's heart swells with emotion and he leaves the room and he bawls. And then he composes himself and he comes back in the room. The Lord, Isaiah is saying, Lord, you're composing yourself. You're holding back. You're not reaching out. You're not caring. You're not, you're not ministering your grace to us. You're holding back like Joseph did. But the second time, in Genesis, is when Joseph assembles his brothers for a meal, and he sees Benjamin there again, and this time he says, everybody, tells all the Egyptian, you know, servants and whoever else, uh, the attendants, you all leave, and Joseph lets it loose in front of his brothers, and he says, he doesn't hold anything, he doesn't compose himself at all. The floodgates are flowing, and he says, I'm your brother, and his brothers are like, what is happening? They don't recognize him. It's that flood of emotion. And Isaiah is praying to the Lord, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back. And he's praying for relief. Verse 16, for you are our father. And he repeats that in the end of 16. He says, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. The reference to Israel is not Israel the nation, I don't think. I think the reference to Israel is Israel the person. Uh, it's a reference to, his name was Jacob. He was, it was changed to Israel. So what he's praying is, if you were to imagine, like, let's take Jacob in the book of Genesis or take Abraham, who's That's easy. Abraham in the book of Genesis. If you were to fast forward, it would be like 800 years from the time of Abraham 
to Isaiah's day, he's like, if Abraham could time travel and land himself right in the midst of Jerusalem right now, what would he think of us? And basically Abraham would be like, I don't even know you people. This people reflect nothing of the faith or the belief or the ideas that I have always believed, or what, by God's grace, I've believed about the Lord God. It's kind of, I mean, that's not hard to imagine. I mean, we've only been a country for, what, less than 250 years still. Can you imagine if the, those founding fathers of when we declared our independence from Great Britain and George Washington and James Madison and, and John Adams, like if they could time travel to our era and look at our country and our culture, I think they would be like, this is America? This is not what we dreamed of. This is not what we imagined America would look like. This is not why we went into battle for our independence, for what you have now. I don't think they would, they would say, you are not our, we're not your forefathers. That's what, that's what Isaiah is praying. If, I, if Abraham could transport himself, he would say, I don't even know you. But Lord, you're our father. You can't deny it. Lord, you are our father. We have no father but you. Abraham may deny it, but God won't. That's his hope. That's his prayer in verse 16. And then in verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? Why do you harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribe of your heritage. That's another somewhat difficult verse. I don't think Isaiah is blaming God. Like, this is, God, this is all your fault. He knows it's not God's fault. He, nor, he's not even trying to intimate that. And uh, the prayer continues in chapter 64, and if we were to skip where, we'll, where we will be next week in chapter 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Isaiah knows he's a sinful man dwelling among sinful people. So what is he praying in verse 17? I think it's this. Isaiah knows there is, we are so polluted, we are so idolatrous, we are so steeped in our sin, unless the Lord does something, it's not going to change. Nothing's going to change. I'm going to be as helpless and hopeless tomorrow as I was today, as I was yesterday. So, so long as the Lord does not actually solve the problem until he actually executes on his promise, we're stuck. It's a prayer of we're stuck unless God does something, unless the Lord does something. And then in verses 18 and 19, he ends with this idea. I think his argument is this. Your, your purpose in verse, back in 14 is to make for yourself a glorious name. That's what he, he mentioned at the end of verse 14. You did all this to make for yourself a glorious name. But in verses 18 and 19, Isaiah is saying, well, if your goal was to make for yourself a glorious name, I mean, I'm going to put this in a crass way, which is probably unfair, but Isaiah is saying, it didn't really work out so well because we didn't keep the land very long and your sanctuary is going to be trampled and we're going to be exiled. So if the purpose was to set your grace on Abraham, on the Israelites, to make us a people that make your name glorious, and that's how it ends up, 
Lord, you must have had something bigger in mind than that. And the answer is, yes, he did have something bigger in mind than that. And that's what Isaiah's counting on. And that's why Isaiah's praying. And lest the Lord... Jonah learned in the belly of a great fish, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation isn't of Jonah. And it's not even of a sick that didn't like a man. Salvation is of the Lord. And Isaiah's counting on that. And that's the basis of his prayer. What a fabulous passage. What are your comments and questions? Lori. Because he tells us to. Ultimately, it's because he tells us to. You know, God says back in those verses, bring it to my attention. Remind me. He wants me, he wants you as a believer to repeat to him what he's already promised to do. It's not, it's not for the Lord's benefit. It's not like, oh, that's right. I had that on my to-do list. It keeps getting pushed down. I'll push it back up again. It's not really for his benefit. But when God says, I want you to remind me, uh, rec- you know, bring to my attention what I promised to do, it's not for the Lord's benefit. It is right on the list where he intends for it to act, absolutely be fulfilled at exactly the right time. It's really for your benefit. No. Well, it kind of is in the context of forgetting. It's kind of in the context of forgetting, but not the Lord's forgetting. It's my forgetting. It's my forgetting. So when we remind the Lord of what he says he's going to do, it's not because the Lord forgets, it's because I forget. Because when my present circumstances are difficult, and yet I know what the Lord has promised, I'm forgetting, look, the Lord has promised this. He's promised this good end. He promised I will never leave you or forsake you. He's promised that this is how he's going to work out his purposes of redemption. This is how uh, God's Spirit is working in your life and you're being strengthened in patience and grace and faith. And so it's, I'm forgetting, not the Lord. But we're talking to the Lord. And in talking to the Lord, we're talking to ourselves. And God uses, God not only ordains ends, He ordains means. And so if God in His good pleasure uses the means of prayer to accomplish his ends, then that's all part of a, a way that brings God glory as well. All I know is I'm commanded to remember and to, and to remind God of what he said he was going to do. It's really for my benefit. Well, I didn't... I kind of doubt it. I think it's probably a word that if we were to write our own Bible, we would choose a different word. But I think it's probably... Um, probably pretty much means what we think it means. <laughs> I think it's meant to be shocking. I think it's me- I was shocked when I read, we're to remind God of what he said he was going to... I was shocked by that. And if somebody give- told me that idea before I read it in Isaiah, I probably would have really repulsed at that. Uh, <clears throat> I-, I think I wouldn't put it that way. And then Isaiah did, and I'm like, well, okay. I guess if Isaiah did it... <laughs> it's fascinating. Carrie... Well, I mean, in their culture, the safest place to be at any given point is in the city. And cities, a city that's surrounded by walls. Jerusalem was the safest city in Judah. When the Assyrians came in, uh, the Assyrians wiped out all the Judean towns except for Jerusalem. And they probably would have gotten Jerusalem too, except the Lord sent an angel to slay the Assyrian army. But the point is, those walls were very protective. And so you had watchmen on top of the walls. To, they're, the, like, they're like a, I mean, they're like a, 
in, in Lincoln, when we lived in Lincoln, it's fabulous. I, they don't still use it, but it's still there. On top of the post office in the downtown square, if you ever go to Lincoln, on top of the post office, in the, or maybe it's the building right across from the post office, on the down, it's the city hall building, there's a phone booth up on the roof of the building. Because back in the day, that's how they spotted tornadoes. Somebody was up on the roof looking for a tornado, because you can see for miles. We live four miles outside of Lincoln, and I could see the dome four miles away. But up on the roof, somebody would be looking for a tornado, and if he saw it, he called it in. There's a tornado, and here's, here's basically where it's at. That's how they did it. So they left it up there, I assume, just as kind of a novelty, but it's kind of neat. That's what the watchmen did. They're like, they're the news alerts. You know, uh, read, what do they say? Read something, something, read all about it. What, how's that go? What's, extra, extra, read all about it. That's the watchman's job. Extra, extra, read all about it. And sometimes it was good news, and sometimes it was bad news. There's a great story in the Old Testament about that, but I don't have time for that. Joe Ash, did you have something? Looks like you were like close. Great, great way to go down, and and a great example of. How does it affect us? What do we believe about it? How much do we think God is really going to do? And work? There's that other story in the Old Testament where one of the, I think it's Elisha, tells whatever king, you know, like how you're going to defeat the Philistines or maybe it's the Syrians and shoot arrows. And he only shoots three or four. And the prophet's like, basically he's like, boom. Like, I don't think he slapped him, but I think he wanted to. He's like, what is wrong with you? Like, you have an opportunity. The Lord has told you that. And you shoot three arrows if you'd shot the entire quiver full it would have demonstrated what the Lord was going to do for you. So, exactly. Rick. They weren't watching. They weren't praying. And they entered into temptation. We, just like Isaiah, are called, I think, to watch and pray. So, do I, do I consider myself a watchful person, watching how God is fulfilling his purposes? Do I consider myself a praying person, praying that God is fulfilling his purposes? Do I consider myself a person putting in remembrance in my mind as I speak to God what he's promised to do? That's the challenge of the church. It's the challenge of Isaiah's day. What a passage. Wow. Cindy. But he's not going to lose the moment either. It's not that he's going to, he's going to, he's willing to lose the battle in the moment or, you know, lose this moment in his providence to accomplish. He's, he's got it all. I mean, one of the very few people in, in the Gospels, and I don't, I'm reading into this a little bit, but one of the very few people that ever understood anything about Christ's suffering would be Mary, who anointed Jesus the week before he was going to die. Uh, she anointed him beforehand because I think she was very good at, at listening. You know, uh, while others were busy doing and dreaming, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning. And she knew a moment was coming, and she anointed his feet for burial, for death, beforehand. And so I think in some sense she's watching and praying, and she's able to, on some level, see what the Lord is doing as he dies on a cross. I don't by any means mean to say that she understood all, all that was understood as that unfolded by the apostles as, as all the evidence came out. But she understood more than any of the apostles in that moment. To the extent we watch and pray, we will appreciate uh, what God is 
purposing in his goodness and his grace. Let's stand and be dismissed.